Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk Apple right now, Matt. The company yesterday unveiled an updated iPad Pro with a faster processor, 5G connectivity, upgraded screen, and new cameras. The question is, do investors care? Let's bring in Anand Srinivasan. He's a senior uh, technology analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. So Anand, as we think about the Apple story here, I'm looking at the stock. It's you know flat year to date, you know, really underperforming the market here. What's the story here for Apple right now? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Paul. Look, I mean, we have maintained that Apple works on two primary vectors, right? The the stock in the company works on two primary vectors. One is iPhone iPhone shipments, and I think they're set up really well in that regard. And the other is the Juggernaut Services franchise, where this is going to be a sixty five billion dollar year just for the services franchise in twenty twenty one. So wow. I think that. The iPad and the Macs are very nice products, and in any other company, they would move the needle substantially and then some. But in the Apple scope of you know three hundred and thirty, three hundred forty billion dollars of revenue for the fiscal year, it doesn't. Um, it, it's it's iterative, it's additive, but in and of itself, it's not a standalone uh, vector of leadership. Yeah, about my Mac, I think two thousand. 13 or so i love <laughs> it but strong. i don't have any reason to replace it like it does everything i need it to perfectly well um but in terms of the uh services on when you talk about services i assume you're including um you know the apple music um the apple tv content the podcast that they announced yesterday what what's the big driver with their services yeah, so that's a that's a great question, Matt. Look, the services business has at least eleven subsegments, and we've tried to sort of uh, parse that out. Uh, the Apple Music, Apple TV, TV Plus, the arcade business, um, and all of those are smaller portions of the services franchise. So in in their updates yesterday, they didn't really uh, even Apple Card doesn't move the needle at all for them. The biggest um, is the download of apps, both the paid as well as the free apps. Um, so that's a big portion of the business. Apple Care is, um, is, a, is a very profitable business. The iCloud business is very profitable. And um, the licensing business. Uh, so Google pays Apple for to be the default search engine on the iPhone. And that is a pretty big deal. That is a very lucrative, high-margin payment that Apple gets. Those are the big pieces of the pie. Um, Apple Music is, is nice. It's still smaller than Spotify from a revenue perspective. Apple Pay is, is nice. Again, it's a very cohesive driver of all the different products and services within the Apple platform. But in and of itself, um, I can't believe not- Apple Care is a driver. I mean, this is like they seem like good people, uh, right, at first glance, but then they're making you pay extra to guarantee that your product doesn't break in the next couple of years. I mean, Shouldn't that come for free? <laughs> well, look, I mean, the, there's a replacement value, and they, they, one of the things that um, these are expensive com- components to make and expensive components to assemble. 
Um, there has to be, there's a minimum amount of guarantee that comes with the product, but it's only to the degree that it's a manufacturing issue, right? If I stomp on my iPhone, I don't expect Apple to pick up the tab for that. All right. No, no. All right, let's if go. I re- if I wreck my car, I don't expect, you know, Mercedes to pick up the tab. But if it just stops working, you know, or. <laughs> if it's a manufacturing issue, you can certainly mm-hmm. take it in. But otherwise, you pay insurance. Well, they have the nice and people there at the help bar or whatever it is, Matt. You can just take it into the store. I'm sure they'll, they'll take care of you. So, all right, Anand, I'm looking at the balance sheet here. I'm looking at the financials for this company. You know, almost $200 billion in cash, $80 billion of free cash flow every single year. Then they got a dividend yield of 0.6%. What's up with that? Why don't they raise their dividend, buy back more stock? This is just craziness. Yeah, so look, they're, um, uh, they have accelerated share. They have accelerated share repurchase programs. They have uh, a big buyback up, uh, re-up potentially coming in the next quarter. Um, all of those have to happen. But when you have, again, the size of cash flow generation that this company has, particularly this year, um, when they've done really, really well with the launch of their new iPhone, it's, it's, um, it's staggeringly big. And it's, it's a it's a problem that needs to be overcome. It is, is genuinely a problem of how fast they can deploy that cash, um, either in stock buybacks or dividends or internal R and D, which is not going to move the needle from a cash balance perspective. So it's an absolute problem. You're right. The air tags, such a great idea. I was hopeful when other companies came out with similar products. Um, is this going to be something that we all have on our keychains in the next couple of years? Absolutely. I think, you know, I see the AirPod, uh, the uh, AirTags as uh, very similar to the uh, the AirPods franchise that was a sleeper hit and continues to be a really good product for them. Um, and I think it sort of, again, adds to the platform effect that Apple has. Um, and the security is robust. So I can definitely see this product taking off and being a, mm. a, a noticeable line item. All right, I, I, I'll, I'm excited to see the reviews of that. Anand, thanks so much for joining us. Anand Trinivasan there, Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. This is Bloomberg. We were talking precious metals. I want to bring in Everett Millman right now, precious metals specialist at Gainesville Coins. Um, I mean, gold is probably the the focus of most of our listeners in terms of, you know, precious metals that um, individuals hold. Everett, we haven't really seen gold, you know, in the face of uh, inflation expectations. We haven't really seen gold move to um, really impressive levels, although it's had a good run the last few days right now at 1792 a troy ounce. Where's it headed? Well, that recent rally you mentioned has pulled gold back to essentially its December lows, and it seems poised to retest those levels. In the short term, it certainly helps that the dollar has pulled back a bit. Um, But really, the gold trade has been pretty boring, right? Um, We've seen some subdued trading in the West. But when I look internationally, um, there's some key developments that I think are rather favorable for gold and could pretty swiftly push us back above that 1,800-an-ounce level. Um, China's relaxed its pretty strict rules on who can import gold, so several billion dollars of gold are expected to flow into Beijing in the next couple of months. And similarly in India, um, they have eased their rather high import duties on gold, 
And as a result, we saw record high first quarter imports into India year over year. Um, and even in South Korea, the gold trade, trading volumes have been running pretty hot, and they're on pace for about a 50% increase year on year. So these strong sources of demand should at least put a floor below the gold price, perhaps around 1750 an ounce for the time being. But I do agree that uh, overall in the West, uh, it ha- the gold trade has been pretty subdued. It really isn't moving anywhere yet. Everett, is that reflecting uh, the rise in the ownership of Bitcoin and people viewing Bitcoin as a perhaps a comparable store of value to gold? And they're saying, hey, maybe I'll take a little bit off my, uh, you know, my gold column and put it into Bitcoin. Sure. I do think that, you know, there is this clear rivalry between the two groups of investors. Um, but somewhat interestingly, survey data gathered between 2017 and 2020 uh, by a British firm called Global Web Index, shows that there is quite a bit of crossover between the demographics who are interested in cryptocurrencies and those who are interested in gold. Um, it is a bit surprising because we tend to associate gold with the older investing crowd and cryptocurrencies with uh, younger investors and people who are just getting into the markets. But in fact, there is this overlap. So with the rise in interest in cryptos and NFTs, non-fungible tokens, we are seeing that siphon off some investment dollars away from the precious metals. Just as cryptos rallied to start the second quarter, uh, open interest in COMEX gold futures hit a two-year low. So I do believe there is a correlation between the two. Um, but as there are some, an emergence of some gold-backed cryptocurrencies, perhaps we could see some uh, further merging between those two asset classes, classes and between the types of mm-hmm. investors who are interested in them. Yeah, that, that would be interesting, although um, hasn't yet become really popular, the idea of um, gold-backed crypto. But uh, it, it makes a lot of sense if we were willing to trade gold-backed fiat for so long. I wonder about um, Palladium. As the headlines just crossed the terminal, we hit an all-time high does this rally continue, or is this just part of the auto sales bottleneck due to the ship shortage? Well, certainly the, um, the, the semiconductor and ship shortage is affecting the auto industry, which has that direct effect on palladium. But even outside of automobiles, the energy transition to cleaner fuels, could palladium could figure importantly into that, both platinum and palladium. Um, are involved in fuel, emerging fuel cell technology and other hydrogen-based fuels. And we also have to remember on the supply side that the majority of the world's palladium supply comes from Russia. So these reciprocal um, tensions and sanctions between the United States and Russia could perhaps put a barrier on a lot of that palladium getting out of Russia. So I do think that the trend is still going to be upward for palladium, even though we're at the peak of what is a multi-year rally and hitting those all-time highs um, because of the supply concerns and because palladium does figure into the potential green future for our, our, our energy sources. All right. Great, uh, great intel there, and we're so glad to get you on. Everett Millman, precious metals specialist from Gainesville Coins, uh, coming to us, obviously, out of Gainesville, Florida, talking Florida us through Gators. what's going on in, in gold, what's going on in, 
in, in, in really in the kind of cross currents between the metal and the crypto um, yep. sector as well. And um, what what is in which which university is in Gainesville? Is that University Jacksonville? of Florida? Yeah. Okay, university so Florida. so yeah. Jacksonville is Florida U. Those are the Gators. And no, Gainesville you know, Gainesville is, is University of Florida and Tallahassee is Florida State. Ah, oh, Tallahassee. All right. All right, cool. There you go. All right, thanks for setting me straight, our university <laughs> specialist. This is Bloomberg. Now let's bring in David Kudla. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Strategist, Mainstay Capital Management. And he's here to talk to us about his investment strategy in the current market environment. David, I guess the first thing we have to know um, is your forecast for growth and inflation. Well, uh, first, we think that uh, we're going to have an amazing first quarter for growth, uh, both in terms of what we're seeing in terms of you know, GDP for the economy uh, and what we see you know, coming out of this uh, uh, impact of the COVID and uh, the lockdowns on the economy from last year. So year over year, you know, we're going to see it, uh, amazing growth in the economy. We're also going to see... Uh, the uh, earnings are going to be tremendous. We're expecting best earnings since uh, in the last couple of years. And and we're seeing inflation that is just, you know, incredible. Not necessarily the inflation that the uh, Federal Reserve monitors, although that did come in at, uh, you know, high level year over year headline inflation, uh, highest in many years. But uh, when we look at some of the other commodity prices, you know, we've got uh, – Iron ore trading at a three-year high, nearly tripled since last year. Lumber has gone up more than five times from this, you know, from a, uh, this time last year. So, uh, you know, we're, we're really seeing uh, inflation in many sectors of the economy has run has run at a very very high level. Do you consider that inflation transitory, which is what I think the Fed is suggesting, or is this something that maybe we need to worry about? Well, um, I know that uh, there, there are a lot of people that take objection with this and take objection with the Fed stating this, but we, uh, we do see it as transitory. Uh, we think that a lot of this, especially what I just talked about in some of these commodities, and, and although we may be in a com- the, the beginning of a commodity super cycle, uh, the, the levels that we've seen are a result of a couple of things. Uh, the covid uh, the pandemic had a, impacted the ability to produce some of these commodities, but also um, the construction sector, both uh, commercial and residential, and especially residential, never really slowed down during COVID. Uh, housing has done very, very well, uh, just, you know, incredible pace all the way through the pandemic. And the suppliers didn't expect that. And so there's just incredible pent-up demand for uh, those raw materials, those those supplies for for housing in particular, uh, and building in general, and so you know that will be met, and I think we'll see those prices come back down by as early as the end of the year. So so that that those type of inflationary forces, I think, are transitory. Uh, that- and ultimately, if inflation in general, the uh, the long term secular forces for deflation come back in. Oh, interesting. So does how does that affect the stocks you want to buy? And can you give us some picks? Well, so we, you know, in, in 2020, 
Uh, we were with the stay-at-home trades, a lot of the technology, uh, you know, a lot of the e-commerce trades and uh, internet, e-commerce, uh, IT technology. Uh, we moved to the consumer cyclical, small caps. Now we're we're moving out uh, back into some of the the growthier names. So we still, you know, some of the the areas like uh, the Global X U.S. Infrastructure Development ETF pays. P-A-V-E, hence the name, holds companies like Deere, Vulcan Materials, Emerson Electric. We think they have further to go as the economy reopens. Um, and, and we're still looking at and still holding some of the, the value names that and ETFs that will uh, we think continue to do. There's been a setback in value here the past couple of days, the past month. But we think value has further to go with the fiscal stimulus that's in the system and coming. Uh, but we're looking at, at some of the, the na- some of the ETFs like Moat, Vanek, Vectors, Morningstar, Wide Moat ETF holds names like Google, Intel, Yum Brands, General Dynamics. These are uh, the brands that have a, a wide defensible moat around their business model, and and uh, and then a Garp ETF, growth at a reasonable price. And, and these are uh, another growthier type ETF, holds like Facebook, Pulte Homes. Uh, we still think the home builders have further to go. Uh, United Rentals, Adobe. And these are just uh, some of these, uh, a mix of, of still some cyclicals with some growth names that we think can, can do well uh, as we continue to move through the reopening of the economy. David, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective on these markets. David Kudla, CEO and Chief Investment Strategist for Mainstay Capital. Again, uh, still constructive on this market map, but you know, kind of rotating maybe a little bit uh, back into some of those growth names we heard from David. That cyclical trade had worked mm. so well really since September of last year as you know we started to get the, some positive vaccine uh, data points out there. Then we uh, saw a rotation of the rotation. A rotation of the rotation. And I think, you know, we're starting to see uh, some folks take a, a look at some of those growthier names as well. So uh, lots of uh, ways to play this market. Bloomberg opinion. Every day at this hour, we uh, get a columnist from our opinion uh, uh, our opinion group to talk about a, a column he or she has written. Sarah Halzak joins us now, retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You've written about inflation, uh, a very timely moment, saying that not everyone can copy Procter & Gamble's price hikes. You talk about um, the ease with which P&G raises prices on diapers as well as tampons, but said um, say that uh, it's difficult for everybody um, including competitors, to raise prices for the same reasons. Yeah, that's right. And I think part of that is because we've actually seen consumer brands flexing pricing power throughout the pandemic in ways that are starting to pressure consumers' wallets, right? Um, I've written about that everyone from Crocs to Crocs clogs to Jif peanut butter to Whirlpool appliances have seen the benefit of pricing actions during this time. Um, one way is by cutting promotions. We've seen a lot of that over the last year, not offering that 40% coupon that may have been table stakes before the pandemic, um, and also through list price increases. And uh, for a variety of consumer psychology reasons, consumers have largely put up with it. But I think we are getting to a point where it's fair to ask how much more of this can consumers see before they bulk. 
All right, so Sarah, what are we seeing in terms of maybe some of the, you know, the, the bigger players, the Procter's and Gamble's of the world versus maybe some of the, the smaller brands? Do they have similar pricing power, or do you have? To, is it really select? Uh, they do not have similar pricing power. I think we've seen these big brands um, are able to do this. Uh, you know, one thing P and G has talked about that the pandemic really did was kind of bring people back to big national trusted brands in a big way. Um, I think when, when you're in this time of crisis, you maybe don't feel as comfortable trying something new. You just want the thing that you know works, especially in the categories that P&G is in, like household cleaning products, um, uh, things that would you know contribute to your safety during this time. Um, so I do think the big national brands have particular pricing power. And so you know, what P&G is committed to doing is it said in its baby care, feminine care, and adult incontinence division, um, by September, you're going to see a mid to high single digit price increases on products in those categories. And that follows a similar announcement from Kimberly Clark. Uh, that's the company that makes uh, Huggies diapers and Scott toilet paper. Then they would do uh, price hikes of a similar magnitude. I'll tell you, it would be a blessing for the earth if people would stop using disposable diapers and start using cloth diapers instead unlikely as that is to happen where, where is it difficult to hike prices sarah i think in the most discretionary categories and i think you know one thing that happened uh during the pandemic was that uh safety and convenience really trumped value in consumers buying decisions right so in order to only have to go to one store you just bought whatever was available even if it wasn't on sale, or you just sucked up that the prices were higher online for the safety of having it delivered to your doorstep. And I think now that consumers are more mobile again, they're going to feel comfortable hitting more stores. They're going to feel comfortable, you know, doing more price comparison and engaging in that activity again. And so uh, that is that is going to make them more conscious of price tags. And so I think these really discretionary items like do you really need um, a new piece of clothing? Do you really need a new handbag? Um, do you really need more uh, sports equipment after all the camping gear you bought last summer when being outdoors was the only thing you could do? Um, I think all of those are going to be areas where raising prices is just more difficult than it is on something as essential as diapers, which is a purchase you just can't put off. All right. So, Sarah, are we seeing consumers shifting maybe from name brands to store brands to try and define value? So that is definitely something we have often seen during a recession. Um, I don't think we've seen a lot of clear evidence of that yet. I think uh, some of what's at play is what I was describing earlier about this flight to really trusted brands um, and really wanting to make sure, especially with things like household cleaners or laundry uh, detergent, that you're really getting something that's going to perform, that you're going to get bang for your buck. Uh, so I don't think we've seen uh, that migration to store brands yet. And specifically with this diaper issue, um, often if you saw the big brands like Pampers or Huggies raising prices, uh, that could be uh, an advantage for store brands. But because this is a commodity-driven issue um, that's affecting the whole industry, it's because the price of pulp uh, is really straining their margins. Uh, I don't think you're going to see that flight to store brands because I think everyone across the board is going to be having to make pricing adjustments to shoulder these costs. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if any of this of these price pricing issues go away, right? Because um, we're assured by Jerome Powell that this is transitory, and it doesn't sound like, at least in the cases that we're talking about from P and G or Kimberly Clark, 
that that it is going to go away very quickly. Right. These commodity cost issues might take a little while to work out. And look, when you talk about, you know, the consumer sector overall, uh, there's much more baked into this. There's, yes, um, the port congestion and the global shortage of shipping containers. All of that is impacting their logistics costs. But they're also dealing with another issue, which is that e-commerce as a percentage of their sales likely skyrocketed last year. And I expect that people start moving around more. Um, that will retreat a little bit, and people will go back to doing some in-store purchasing. But you have to remember that the rise of e-commerce um, is often harmful to the profit margins of retailers because they have to foot that bill for last-mile delivery um, and, in some cases, have to pay for uh, return delivery if you decide you don't like the item. That's really expensive for them, and it's a real change in their cost structure as more and more of their business moves online. And so that's just one more thing uh, they're dealing with that is not going to go away and that's going to shape uh, their pricing decisions. Does, is there, just the 30 seconds, does Procter Gamble care whether their product gets purchased you know, on, in a brick-and-mortar store or online? Uh, no, I don't think so at this point. I think, you know, ultimately their direct customers are the retailers themselves, not the shopper. Um, and so I think, you know, their focus is just on uh, supplying those retailers with product uh, that they can sell in whatever channel uh, the customer most wants to spend their money. Sarah Halzak, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Sarah Halzak, she's a retail columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read all of her work and that of our good folks at Bloomberg Opinion uh, at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the Bloomberg Terminal by typing O-P-I-N-Go. We have some fantastic Bloomberg Opinion <clears throat> columnists, and they really put out some really thought-provoking pieces. Uh, Sarah really focuses on all things in the retail space, and we are seeing commodity prices. We have seen commodity prices increase uh, pretty much across the board, and, and, and again, the question is how much will manufacturers uh, you know, eat those uh, cost increases or pass them along to consumers and in terms of products we're seeing it on the consumer side prices going up this is Bloomberg. thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm matt miller i'm on twitter at matt miller 1973 and i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at pt sweeney before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide at bloomberg radio